Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And I'll tell you, you know, I miss some of our rhythm section or whatever, but I like some room to kind of explore the space a little bit. I don't know if I'll need it, but it's good to know it's possible. We'll see. All right. Hey, I'm glad you're with us. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn or tap your way to the book of Philippians. That's where we're going to be for a minute as we explore God's grace to us through this very specific, very beautiful, probably often overlooked in your life uh, letter that talks about joy. Now, if you have a copy of the scriptures, great. If not, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen for you, probably. Uh, And we would love to give you a copy of the scripture on your way out. So I want to make sure that you have one. Uh, Let's see. I want to make sure that you have one in in a modern English translation that you can get to quickly. So Let me ask a question that a lot of us have asked over the last year in maybe a harder way than we've ever asked it before. You may have asked it in a soft way as you've kind of wondered uh, about its usefulness maybe, but over the last year you've had to ask in a hard way, why come to church? Now, uh, the, the command to not forsake the gathering together of believers may spring to your mind from Hebrews. You may know that culturally Christians gather together and and do this sort of church thing together on Sundays, traditionally, historically, culturally. But really though, why? I mean, last week Josh was asking about like, well, you know, why do we stand and stare at this wall and read these words and sing them out to each other? You know, we went through all the stuff from last year with COVID and, you know, of course, who knows what will happen over the next couple of years. And we had to answer some hard questions about what, what can church be? How can we keep it going? How do we make sure that people are well cared for, but also that we, we still do what Christians do? That's all big sort of historical and maybe even kind of big questions that we ask as a group. But let me ask you personally, why come to church? Why connect with other believers? I mean, a lot of people have this idea that their relationship to God is primarily a personal issue. It's a thing that's theirs. How do we understand the, the sort of historic idea that, no, it, it's not just yours, that you're brought into a family and you, you gather with that family? How do we then talk to people who attempt that and then come out the other side of it and say, in a heartbroken way, look what they did to me? Maybe you're somebody who's had an experience with church or with relationships, specific relationships that happen in a church. Maybe it's not really the the church's piece. It's just people you knew from church that have really hurt you. Why do you stay involved? Why do you come back? And then, yeah, like we've been asking over the last year, why come at all when you can just do it online? And we're welcoming all the people that are online with us this morning. I know that, you know, whatever YouTube tells us is probably not a million people. But why I'm going to make the case today for why you should come through the camera and then into the room uh, with us. Why? Paul did not feel that being together with Christians was something that could be overlooked. He saw it, even with the incredible difficulty of planting and pastoring, as a wonderful thing and a huge blessing. And as you're reading with me, Philippians 1, 3 through 11, we're going to reread what we read last week. We're just going to kind of dig into it from a different perspective. 
I want you to kind of notice with me what seems odd about the way that he's talking. It's possible that you, like a lot of people, when we read Scripture, sort of tune out. It is, okay, here's the Bible, I'm listening, I don't understand very much of it, but whatever, and then the Bible reading is done. David was very convicting when he was talking about that with prayer a couple weeks ago, and he said, I don't know, I mean, how many people do this, but when it's time for, like, all of us to pray together, and then somebody starts to pray, and you just sort of nod your head and either go to sleep or think about something else, and then they say, amen, and you go, amen, and you just sort of catch back up. No, no, we want to pray together, and I want us to read this together. I do want you to attempt to understand what's being said, and I want you to ask yourself what seems odd about it, what seems startling in it, and then uh, let's kind of dig into it together. Something you're not expecting from Philippians 1, 3 through 11. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for, all, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ." filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I don't know what sticks out to you from that text, but as I read it, and I think about the kind of thing that I might write if given the opportunity slash, you know, obligation to, to try and instruct a church, I think I would give you a lot of information and I think in, in, the, in my list of things that I need to communicate, number one would be information. But if you read this carefully, over and over again, this Paul guy is talking about how much he just loves them. How much he loves these Philippian people. How much he is yearning for them with a deep affection for them. That he is praying for their love to abound more and more. But he's talking about how he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. How often do you use that word? Yearn. It's a top shelf word. If I said it to my wife, she might be like, okay, easy. I should desire her more than anything else in the whole world. And if I say to her that I yearn for her, she'll be like, the kids are around. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's a heavy word. And he's talking about how he yearns for other believers. Do you? I don't know, man. It sticks out. I don't know that it's what we encourage. I think culturally we have this idea that your Christianity is first about you and your relationship to God. Sure. But if you stop there, then we actually have to ask questions about whether or not it's very authentic. Forgive me, but that's how he's talking here. He is saying that if you really do see the Lord, and then you meet somebody else who is a partaker with you of that grace, man, it's impossible not to connect We've got a little puppy, he's a year old. 
And we can't take him everywhere. Because if you take him somewhere and he sees another dog, he's just going to lose his mind. He's going to bark like crazy. He's going to pull as hard as he can to try and get to that dog when we drive and he's with us. He'll step on children and jump up on top of Rachel or me or anybody else if he sees somebody walking a dog out there because he sees another thing like him. It's so fun when a dog comes up on the TV screen and he comes breaking across the floor, no matter where he's at, to jump up and get as close as he can to the TV and bark at the dog on the TV because that's another one of him. He only ever sees people or little girls. And then here's this thing like him. Is that what you feel when you see other people like you? This guy, C.S. Lewis, talk about him all the time. He wrote a, a lot about friendship, trying to recover and then sort of reestablish the concept of deep, real friendship. Not just love and like sexual love and romantic love, and not just like kind of mutual admiration, sort of every now and again friendship, but deep, real friendship. He wrote a lot about it in a couple different places. One of his books called The Four Loves is, is really helpful in this. But, but one quote, and I think it was just from like an article that he wrote, he talks about how, how friends are made or what friends primarily are. Lovers are focused on each other. They looking, they're looking at one another. But friends, unlike lovers, are actually looking together at something. This is what he says. Friends are not primarily absorbed in each other. It is when we are doing things together that friendship springs up. Painting, sailing ships, praying, philosophizing, fighting shoulder to shoulder. Friends look in the same direction. He says in another place that friendship is the moment when you discover that somebody else shares your passion. And he says, like, the friendship's the moment when you go, oh, you too? I, th I thought it was just me. And you find that somebody else has that same connection to you. Great British Baking Show's back on, and they've got crazy accents. Rachel and I got maybe 60% of what was said the first time we watched it, because it's real British. And one of the ladies said that she loved being there. She didn't want to go home, because it was one of the few places she could sit and talk to other people about cakes without boring the pants off of them. Yeah, I get that. I don't want to talk about cakes. I want to eat cakes. I don't want to talk about cakes. But when she gets into the tent of the Great British Baking Show, she runs into other people who are as passionate about cakes as she is. Very quickly, she can connect to these people, not because they went to war together. I mean, by the end of the baking show, you know, it's a form of war maybe. But, but at the beginning of the show, they become friends because they're just so fascinated by the same things together. They're both together looking at this passion. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are together those who have experienced the same, but also are fascinated by or absorbed by the same thing. That should create, it's human for that to create an intense attraction between us together. You go back to what's said in, in Philippians 1. Uh, it says in verses 7 and 8, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. Paul even feels the need to address his sort of exuberance towards these other Christians. And he said, it's right for me to feel this way. I hold you in my heart. Because uh, for, for you are all partakers with me of grace, 
both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Again, he's talking about this intense emotion towards them, but it's based on this concept that they are partakers together of something. They're partakers together of something so important, so crucial, so critical. Yeah, you can be passionate together about cakes, and that does create some sort of a connection. But to be passionate together about God? You're climbing the ladder to the, as high as it goes. You're, you're finding the thing that will engage your personhood to its fullest and beyond. To find another person who has tasted that same electricity, who has, who has witnessed that same supernova. How can it not connect us? He talks about being partakers with him in grace. That you, if you are a believer, when you meet another believer, are meeting another person who has touched what's holy. If you read through the Old Testament, one of the things that slows people down is the book of Exodus. Because you get through Genesis, it's got a lot of stories. You may understand them, you may not, but at least they're stories. Everybody loves stories. You get into Exodus, and the first half of it is a lot of stories, and they're crazy. But then the back half is a lot of laws. God's given now, through Moses, the way that these people are going to act. And then, when you get into deep Exodus, it's a lot of, like, architecture. It just is telling you about how the tabernacle is constructed. And I don't know how often you read, like, manuals, but when you get into that part of Scripture, there's a part of you that just gets your sort of discipline tested. I don't know. Maybe you're not like me and it was easy for you. I didn't get thrilled about reading about curtain lengths, but that's what's there. However, as you're reading it, if you allow what you're reading to create a picture in your mind, it becomes something really intense. Because what's being described is this desert people that was just moments ago a group of slaves, a slave class within Egypt that is now, through being delivered by God, been anointed, been tapped to contain the holiness of God. And this tabernacle that they're constructing, that he, he gifts certain people with, and they plunder Egypt by the way that God, it's this crazy story, but the way that he gives them favor in the eyes of the people, and they ask for stuff, and as they're leaving, the Egyptians just pour silver and gold and all these fine materials on the people of Israel so that in the desert they have all this raw material, and God pulls from them into this, this beautiful tabernacle, this tent that's made an incredible um, symmetry with all these special ideas and and, and ways it communicates something about the holiness of God, but out of the finest materials of the world, and, and it erects, it becomes this thing. And in this place, there are these very specific tools, these very specific objects that are used to express both God's holiness in the way that sinful people are allowed to be in that holiness. And at the first construction, and then when they have to move it, and every time it's reassembled, there's a point where there's just desert and then the priests come and carrying with very specific outfits in very specific ways. They come bringing fine objects that they then sit in very particular ways 
where around them is constructed this tent. And then inside comes Moses who begins to anoint each of these different objects because when the anointing is finished, the presence of God himself is going to come and rest in that place. Can you imagine what it would be to be one of those priests? Can you imagine what it would be to be one of those objects? Can I tell you that when you read the New Testament, you see that what God has done through Christ is to invite you into that holiness. At Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes to rest among them, that is the anointing of God's people, that you are now given, being forgiven by God. You're allowed to enter into His holy presence and being given through the Holy Spirit His holy presence. You're being anointed. You're one of the few people who are allowed to walk into that presence, to be able to stand boldly before the throne of grace. And now you meet another person who is a partaker in that grace? How life-altering. You're not just a partaker in grace, you're also a partaker in suffering. Paul was somebody who was regularly running up against authorities. We remember from two weeks ago how his sort of career in Philippi started with getting stripped and shamed and beaten in front of everybody, and yet... The Philippian Christians continue to stand with him. He's writing this letter from another jail in Rome to, probably Rome, to this church in Philippi. And still they're owning him. Still they know him and love him. Still they're saying that they're part of his team. They're going through suffering together. And you and I as believers are going to do that too. Our faith is going to become more and more marginalized, not more and more accepted. That word bigot is going to get forgotten because it's going to get replaced by all kinds of larger and more intense words to get thrown at people who insist that God exists and that he has a standard of right and wrong. As we suffer together, God's going to unite us to each other. If you tried to, to push the ball forward with kingdom work, then you've already suffered as you try to throw big parties for, for people and share the gospel with them, as you try to go door to door and put a door hanger on people's houses and invite them to come and to see, as you go to, to, to just care for somebody who's really hard to care for, who has a lot of different problems, and over time, initially, you felt like kind of a superhero because you were helping this person out, but then they just keep calling, and it's like two years later, and you're just sore and tired, and the people around you are also sore and tired, and you have been suffering together. And that suffering unites. Now, I, I hope nobody's too intensely against Harry Potter, but, but one of the lines from that book, right at the very beginning, there's sort of three main characters. Two of them are boys and they're friends, and the other one's a girl, and she's kind of a nag. And then they get trapped in a bathroom together with this big mountain troll, and they're able together, even though they're just little kids, to defeat the mountain troll. No spoilers, that's pretty early in the series. And then they just realize as they leave that moment that they're friends. They just realize it's, just, it's already happened. She's still a nag. They're still kind of idiots, but they are friends. And here's the line. There are some things you can't share without ending up liking each other. And knocking out a 12-foot mountain troll is one of them. Now, that means a lot to me because I care about the series. You might be like, oh, nerd, get it. I totally get it. But you can sympathize. 
There are some things that if you go through them together, you just can't replicate that. You're now bonded. I understand why Navy guys would get those like prison-looking tattoos, because they just want to find some way to express that they've all gone through this together. God, in his allowing of suffering, unites us, unites us to each other and unites us to Christ. Here are the people who are still around. That moment when Jesus has to give a hard teaching and he watches the crowds disappear. And there's the disciples still around him. He goes, you going to leave too? And then Peter says, where else can we go? You have the words of life. When things get really rough and Hope Church is not cool and a lot of the crowd disappears, through that suffering, there's going to be people who are still here. And the people who are still here are going to be united. Suffering also purifies the love that we have for one another as we walk together through difficulty and suffering. It's going to purify us because he does talk about your love abounding. It says in verse 9, and my prayer is that your love may abound more and more, but it's not just about love. We need love that is, is encased by, is, is carefully guided by knowledge and all discernment so that even though you love one another, you continue to approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. There's something really scary, but it's true. Heresy, and by that word, I mean the twisting of a gospel message so that it's no longer what it was. It historically comes from the mission field. By that, I mean that the crusty ivory tower types can turn into Pharisees. They're not fun people to be around. But often, they still have right theology. And the fun, hearty people that are willing to get out there and mix it up and try to push the ball forward, the one who rubs shoulders with the Pharisees and the prostitutes, the one who get out there into the prisons and try and love on people, messy people, they create this connection. They actually do love the people that they're caring for. And that bridge, that bridge of love that allows them to speak into the life of the person that they're caring for, is, is, it is a bridge. And there's other things that can come back across that bridge. You're caring for this person, you're loving this person, they're hearing what you're saying, and they're starting to agree with parts of it, and they're saying yes to a lot of it, but they, they want this one thing to change. Man, they agree that they would like to be Christians, but this, this one idea, this one uh, ethical stance about sexuality, about identity, I just, if we could just change that, you don't even have to change it. If we could just de-emphasize that one about gender roles, if we could just, if there's just one thing you could kind of, and because you love that person, oh, it's tempting. And so we love one another, but Paul's telling us, he's reminding us that we love more and more, but with knowledge and discernment. That's another reason, though, to come to church, to be part of the church, where together we can see discernment as well as love multiply. Hey, do we have this preaching moment? You're listening as Josh and David lead you on a regular Sunday morning through the reading of Scripture, through the application of that reading. 
We have a church that's way broader than just Hope Church that gives all kinds of amazing resources exactly where they're needed. A couple that I want to just give you, websites that you can write down that I would encourage you to go to with your questions about culture or questions about other things. And then, you know, if you get something that's crazy to you or whatever, hopefully you'll talk to us and we can kind of walk with you through it. One is called to get, uh, thegospelcoalition.org, tgc.org. Go check it out. It's fantastic. Another is called desiringgod.org. Go check it out. Go take your crazy questions there. See what you see. Incredible discernment that God's given to his people. ChristianityExplored.org. They wrote a lot of the material we're going to be using in our New to Christianity class. And they've got these incredible videos that are very short, answering the hard questions people ask in a modern society about Christianity. Go check it out. God's given us resources for discernment, for a love that has knowledge and all discernment. We've got to use it. And as we gather together, as this love continues, we want, we want to figure out how to do this more and more. There's a lot of temptation that's going to come. As soon as you really do try to unite together, Christ said that you will know they are Christians by your love for one another. The world is going to see that's the earmark of Christianity. And if that's true, then the enemy is going to be heavily focused on breaking apart our unity by breaking apart our love for one another. Maybe even now you're thinking to yourself, geez, i got to get out of here. <laughs> Maybe I can come back next week and it'll be on something else like drinking. I, I don't want to think any more about this. But you got to. you got to see that it's a natural thing that will happen as you see the gospel with other people. And yet, it does require time. How becomes the big question. How do you get to a place where this kind of love for other believers is, is authentic, it's real, it's not performed, but it's felt? The how, unfortunately, it really is just time. You know, we, we live in a culture, but we also live in a city, something that's particular to Salt Lake City. You see a lot of Christians that are just sort of citizens of the city church, they're very reluctant to put their roots down at a specific church. We're not going to judge. A lot of people have had some really hard stuff, so they've, they're gun-shy for a reason. We're not judging. But you see it a lot. And when that happens, what they are robbing themselves of is the time with the same people necessary to really enjoy the fruit of Christian love. It takes time. Nobody here is so fantastic that you're going to fall in love immediately. You need time to stare at the Lord with other people and watch as God knits your heart together. You need to do family stuff. You need to do some chores. There are a lot of people that treat Christianity and treat their experience of Christianity, even through Hope Church, as a very like a McDonald's experience. You know, you go to McDonald's, you show up, you go through the drive-thru, and you pay, and then you just leave. And whatever else happens behind closed doors with pink goo or cleaning or whatever, I don't want to know. I just want it hot and salty, and then I'm out of here. <laughs> and if McDonald's was free, if it was a suggested donation, <laughs> oh, man, that'd be even better, right? Ah, you could come and go as you please and just be rolling in French fries for no money. So many of you treat Hope Church that way. Oh, it's McDonald's. You come and you get some hot stuff. 
You get some salty stuff. It's delicious. And it's free. They don't even talk about it. It's almost hard to give at Hope Church. Is that really the expectation that you have for your church, though? It's not the expectation you have for your family. You know, my kids, we serve them. They got a pretty cushy experience. They may not say that, but it's true. They got a great thing going. And yet, they were off school on Friday for parent-teacher conferences, and they spent the whole day cleaning. Why? Because things had gotten rough, and it was their fault, and they could. They can clean, so Rachel and I are working, and they're going to clean, and they're going to pick up everything. And then they're going to go in and, and organize the closet that they just sort of shoved everything into. It's part of a family. You do family chores. You try and move the ball forward of the family. You're doing what you can do. And if you're new to Christianity, you've been here a while and you've not really attempted anything, you're not going to have a lot of skills. You're going to be like one of these new kids. Okay. Well, in the first place, what you can do is learn to, you know, potty train. That's helping the family in a big way. Then, yeah, maybe you start doing some dishes. Take out the trash every now and again. Hope Church has a really cool strategy. That strategy involves us meeting in a place we don't own. That allows us to, to be flexible, to try and grow and grow quickly to the point where we can send people out to plant other churches without this kind of gigantic bill in place of a mortgage trying to own a building in Salt Lake City. That's a strategy I'm behind. If you become a member of Hope Church, you're behind that strategy. You get it. And yet, it's almost like you're living in one of those really nice campers. It's nice. This place is incredible. But there are some inconveniences. We do have to set up and tear down every week. Are you doing the family chores? Are you engaging with this mission? That's, that's weird to even consider that suffering, but are you suffering together? Are you partaking together? I hope the first part of the sermon helps you understand the second part. I want something for you. It will involve doing some chores to be part of the family, but I want you to be part of the family because it's more than just chores. It's also wonderful. It's also my deep, <laughs> my deep joy. Psalm 16, it's one of the most beautiful parts of all Scripture, if you ask me. And it starts off with the kind of prayer that you're looking for from the Psalms. Preserve me, O God, and you I take refuge. That's the kind of stuff we like to say. The righteous run in to the Lord and he delivers them through their afflictions. He's like, he's like a strong tower and you run into him and you're safe. Preserve me, God. Yes, yes, I want to pray that. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Okay, you know, that's a little harder. Now you're dealing with my idols. That's a little bit more uncomfortable, but, you know, that's part of it. And then verse 3 is just out of nowhere. Because it says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. But it's true. It's true. And Paul's preaching it to you from Philippians. And by God's grace, I get to preach it to you this morning and tell you that if you want Christian joy, joy in the battle, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom can be so much, all of your delight. Engage with your family. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would give our people, your people, your family, joy. 
that you do it by giving us good, deep theology, Father, that you do it by giving us a clear picture of your gospel, that it would be first and foremost our connection to you, but that we wouldn't allow the enemy and our own pride to pull us away from, to neglect that other thing that you give us. You call us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but then you also call us to love our neighbor like ourselves. And you model it through Christ, you model it through Paul, and you modeled it in pockets here at Hope Church. I pray that we would press into that good example. That we would be a people who love one another, who put down deep roots. And yes, Father, I know there are a million legitimate reasons that people move cities or even move churches. But, but where possible, when possible, that we would be engaging each other, Lord. For your glory, Lord, and our good. In your holy name we pray. Amen.